right, all right, this is Easter. Happy Easter. He is risen. Okay, very, very cool. We have been, honestly, this is so cool because we started, a, uh, if you're brand new to us, we started a study in Luke that started with Jesus' birth because that's how Luke starts, the gospel, Luke, the biography of Luke. And we wanted to finish it out when we got to uh, Easter. And it's, that's where we're at. And so Easter is when, when we have the death and the resurrection of Jesus take place. It's something that's huge, it's massive, it's a big deal. Now for many of you, and many of you that are watching, some of you are still away. Like you, I mean, you've been, a lot of us this past week, you've been traveling. How many of you were on vacation this past week in Florida? Yeah, we hate you. All right. Like Florida's filled with Illinois people now. Uh, but honestly, that, that's, the, okay, so we, we had a lot of people doing that. So Easter's frantic because of people are getting back from vacation. They're changing gears for school. Uh, so how many of you are having people over at your house? No, no, actually. How many people are going to someone else's house and having them feed you? Oh, yeah. You're the smart ones. How many of you are having people at your house? Fools. <laughs> Fools. And so, honestly, Easter is something that's, that's frantic. And, and honestly, some of you, um, even the details of Easter, my uh, sister-in-law, uh, she put it this way. She said, why does the Easter bunny have their act together in some homes, and in some homes they're me? And that's where some of us feel, like we land on that. We're just like, honestly, I just feel like th this is just yet another example of me having an opportunity to blow it, mess up. Uh, offend people over dinner. That's, you have that in store for you, which is great. But Easter is something that, honestly, for all of us, we, we recognize as, as being something that is a big deal. If you're a Christian, you may not even know how big of a deal it is, but it's, a big, it's the biggest of big deals. Um, it, it's honestly, if you, don't, if you don't believe in what the reality of Easter, the reality of the resurrection, then you're really, a, you're, you're really deluded. I mean, you're, you're a fool to be a Christian. Being a Christian is dumb, if the resurrection didn't happen, because we believe this, if you, if you have, if your hope is not a living hope, it's, it's dead. If your hope is not living, it's dead. That sounds profound, but it's really not. If your hope is not living, it's dead. And if you are someone who has like, I've got this, like, I, I grew up as a Christian. I kind of like believe, I guess, kind of, maybe, I don't know. But the, the resurrection, maybe it happened, maybe it didn't, maybe it's just spiritual. No, that's like delusional. Like if you have a hope that's just like a happy hallmark thought, that's delusion. And so honestly, the thing that, like there was this guy in the New Testament named Saul. Um, he was someone who believed that he loved God, but he hated Jesus. And he really hated Christians, which some of us could have relate to, right? But that, I mean, he hated, he really hated Jesus. He hated Christians more. He was glad Jesus died. Boom, that's over. And then all of a sudden he has an encounter with Jesus. But he didn't stay a Christian. He didn't become a Christian and stay a Christian because of the fact he had an encounter with Jesus. He became and stayed a Christian because he interviewed the eyewitnesses. Paul was an academic. He was a skeptic. And he had right to have skepticism about Jesus coming back from the grave. The fact that he could validate that gave him the confidence to go forward, to have a, a hope that's described by the New Testament as living, not dead, not mythological, not just believing the right stuff, blah, blah, blah. And so if you're a Christian, man, it's a make or break on the resurrection. It's a huge deal. Now, if you're not a Christian with us, if you're like just here and, and, or you're watching from home and you're not a Christian, you're like, I wouldn't identify that. Easter's still a big deal to you, right? I mean, Easter is an opportunity for you to gather with family, maybe get a meal out of it, maybe get a new Kohl's outfit, whatever. That's great. But I promise you, I promise you, I promise you, it's better. And if you lean in, I want to encourage you, if you're a Christian, lean in today. Lean in on the reality of a hope that maybe you have forgotten is so living 
If you're not a Christian today, if you're, you're a friendly agnostic, a friendly atheist that's here because you're polite and someone invited you or you're watching because for the same reasons, man, I'm so glad you're here. Lean in. Lean into this because this is a huge deal. It's such a huge deal that the Easter account starts this way. On the first day of the week, now that may not seem like a big deal, but this, this is for a Jewish crowd, okay? The Jewish crowds, Sunday, the first day of the week, not a big deal. It's the first day of the week. For them, it was a work day. Um, the big deal for a Jewish person, what day of the week is a big deal? Saturday. That's the Sabbath, for crying out loud. So, I mean, sa- that's when you gather with people. That's when you worship God. All of a sudden, these Jewish people switch a time-honored religious tradition to no longer worship on Saturdays, but they're starting to worship God on the first day of the week. Why? Because the historic event changed their whole perspective. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground, but the men said to them, why do you look for the living among the dead? He's not here, he's risen. He's not here, he's risen. All right, it continues. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee, the Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. Then, then they remembered his words. This is how I barely passed Algebra 2. Tell me if you agree with this, if you can relate to this. I barely passed Algebra 2 because the teacher would go ahead and like teach they do. And I would hear it, and I would learn it, but my, my young high school self was thinking about everything else. And then all of a sudden, I would have the test. And when I got, I would, all, I would remember everything the teacher had taught after I got the D minus back. And I'm like, oh, that would have been nice to know before the test. That's exactly what every follower of Jesus is experiencing. I, I, yeah, did I remember him vaguely saying these things? Yes. Did I get it? No. But now I do. Then they remembered his words. So they rushed back from the tomb to tell his 11 disciples and everyone else what had happened. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary, the mother of James, and, the several, and several other women who told the apostles what had happened. And the apostles believed everything they said because they believed the testimony of these women. No. The disciples believed everything they said because they really, really, really were bummed out about Jesus' death and they really, really wanted to believe that he was going to come back from the dead. So they were just waiting on something like this. And as soon as they heard, they, put, they believed it because they were just so delusional. No. They, because the fact that they, they actually, honestly, when they're hearing this, these words, they, they, they said, I, I usually believe in science. Dead things stay dead. But I'm going to just suspend belief for, in science for a couple seconds to believe this goofy thing that these women said. No, but they did not believe the women because their words seemed to them like what? For two reasons. One, they're sexist. Okay, back in, this, in the first century, there was a sexist trope that you just really can't believe women. Um, you, if you had a, a car accident in the first century, first off, that'd be amazing. But if you had a car accident in the first century and there was a woman on the street corner that you're like, okay, I need a witness, uh, anyone else, you would not pick the woman because if you brought her to court with you and said, no, she saw the whole thing, I'm innocent, they'd say, yeah, but she's a lady. 
And they, they wouldn't believe it because of that. It's goofy. But honestly, if you want to tell someone with validity, you don't say the first witnesses to an empty tomb were who? Women. And so for what, and th- here's the thing. I love the fact that these ignorant men had the humility <laughs> to keep in their own biographies their ignorance without censoring it out. You know why? It would have been really, really tough to sell this account to first century men. But they weren't trying to sell propaganda. They were trying to tell the truth, even if it made them look like idiots, even if it sounded hard to believe because the testimony was from women. That's the first reason. Second reason is that nobody believed they were going to find nobody at the tomb. Nobody believed they were going to find nobody. That just that wasn't a thing. It was something that honestly they believed that they were going to find a, the tomb that was there, and there would be the decomposing Jesus. There were no Christians on Easter morning when they woke up. There were no Christians on Easter morning when they woke up. Just confused agnostics. They thought they believed, but now they don't know what to believe. They have no clue what to believe. But that healthy agnosticism, that healthy skepticism, didn't stop Peter, because Peter's a super impulsive guy. We started this whole weekend off on Good Friday talking about, in the account of Luke, when when Jesus locks eyes with Peter, and we wanted to continue on with his storyline to see what happens with him. However, Peter jumped up and ran to the tomb to look. Stooping, he peered in and saw the empty linen wrappings. Then he went home again, wondering what had happened. Peter is super confused. He doesn't know what to do, and he's wrestling with this, so he just basically goes home. In fact, that's kind of what a lot of the disciples were doing. They, they don't know how to process this, and so they have this long, lonely, quiet walk back to their homes. Peter's from, he's, he's a native resident of Sea of Galilee, um, and he grew up there, and, and so he, he walks back there, but as he's walking back, and as he gets there, he's wrestling with a couple of things. He's wrestling, first off, with, actually, yeah, self-doubt, He's wrestling with self-doubt because of the fact that he's someone who knows himself well enough to know that he's impulsive. He's like, look, I don't know why Jesus called me in the first place. I'm out on the Sea of Galilee. This is where I fish. And all of a sudden, this guy's coming through. Everyone's like super excited about him. I don't know him. I don't know if I should be excited about him or not. I just finished a long day's work. I'm cleaning my nets. I'm done for the day. And then he wants to commandeer my boat. Whatever. All right, fine. And then he starts teaching. Now, he's amazing, but still, come, come on. And then he says, hey, why don't you catch some fish? And I'm like, I just finished cleaning them. Fine. We've been fishing all night. We haven't had anything, but whatever you say. He tells him to change his strategy, and he does, and it works. And then he tells Peter, you're not just going to be like catching fish. You're going to be reaching people. And for Peter, an illiterate fisherman, he's an illiterate tradesman, this is amazing. For a second, it's like everything made sense. And for a moment, all of a sudden, it was like as if, he was called to do something that no one would have ever believed that he could have done. Now, Jesus shouldn't be calling him, but he wasn't going to tell Jesus that. Hey, he wants to choose me? That's his issue. I'm just going to roll with it because I'm Peter. And that's what he does. And he continues on, but now he's got to be in this moment of seeing the person that he was following ceasing to be the person he thought that he was. Like, am I just gullible? Like, am I, am, am I that guy that's always just super naive? That I just believe anything and I just jump Everyone's told me that my whole life growing up. Here it is again. I'm a fool. And to be honest, I don't even know what to believe anymore. Self-doubt. Skepticism. He's dealing with major skepticism. He's walking home saying, I believed past tense in Jesus. I believed in Jesus, but Jesus is dead. 
Okay, I put my faith in this powerful leader. He was a powerful leader. No one would debate that. I put my faith in this righteous ruler, the son of God. But did you see what happened to him? What kind of God, what kind of good and powerful God would allow that level of suffering to happen to himself? Perhaps I've invested, I made the worst investment of life believing he was the son of God. Or perhaps I've made the worst mistake of my life betraying the son of God. If he's the son of God, then I've got a bigger problem. Peter's walking back to his house back to the lake he grew up on with a huge amount of shame. I betrayed him not once, not twice, not three times. I told him I wasn't going to even do it, but I did. People said, you're with him. I, I totally denied my connection to Jesus three times. And if he's not dead and he's God, if he's not dead, I'm dead. He would have every reason to hunt me down because of what I did how I betrayed him. When you are realizing, when you come to a point of realizing that you've made the worst mistake of your life, what do you do? When you realize that you are just so deeply confused and depressed and frustrated with life, what do you do? Where do you go? Scripture tells us where he went. Matthew records it. He said, I'm going fishing. Like, literally, like, the next verse. Like, I'm going fishing. That's how Peter deals with it. Like, he's, like, basically there. He's, like, and he's there with, like, a lot of the disciples. There's John, who John was, like, like, Peter was probably, like, 19, 20 years old. John was, like, 14 years old, 15 years old, maybe. So he's, like, like freshman kid or whatever. And it's, like, he's, you got all these disciples, and they're all, again, we don't have any record of anything that they said, probably because they're so quiet. And they're out there, and they're just sitting in the boat. Again, slightly nostalgic. This is where we met Jesus, that person we're remembering today, that person that we are thinking fondly of, but at the same time blown away with how much of a farce it was. And we don't understand about the empty tomb. How do we put that together? Who did this? And he's fishing. And in the midst of fishing, all of a sudden, there's this dude that shows up on the beach. And he says, hey, why aren't you trying to put the net on the other side? And they're just like, who is this? And then, bing, the light bulb goes on of the memory of being asked to do something goofy as far as a fishing strategy and it working before. So they take the nets and they put it on the other side. And all of a sudden, the nets start to get super heavy and pulling the, the ship down because there's so many fish in there. And then John, the freshman kid, goes, that's the Lord. And then Peter's like, and he just, he takes his clothes, he wraps them around, and he jumps off, and he Michael Phelps the 100 yards to the shore. We know it's 100 yards. He gets to the shore, and he's just blown away. Jesus is there, and Jesus says, let's have breakfast. They have breakfast. And as they're having breakfast, the most important conversation Peter will ever have in his life happens. The most, if you've ever wondered what happens when you wrong God, what does God do with a person who fails him? What does, the God, what does God do with a person that wrongs him? We have that picture, we have the answer when he's sitting there on the beach talking with Jesus, having this beach moment with Peter. Peter is right across from Jesus and Jesus asks him what question? Remember? Peter, you love me. That's not what I would have asked. You know what I would have asked? Peter, 
are you really sorry for what you did? So help me, you do that again. I, Peter, I want to restore you. I want, I want to bring you back. I've got great plans for you, but seriously, it ain't going to work if you keep up this kind of garbage. You've got to promise me you'll never fail me again, and then, and then we'll restore you. He doesn't ask him that. You know why he doesn't ask him that? Because he knows he's going to fail him again. He knows it. He doesn't put the weight of Peter's restoration on Peter's shoulders. He actually takes the weight off of him and says, I've done this for you. Do you love me? Are you ready to receive this? You're receiving restoration, not earning it. You should have been kicked to the curb a long time ago. I didn't. I didn't. You love me. And the the crazy thing is with that, he doesn't just ask, do you love me once? He doesn't ask it twice. He asks the same question three times. Three times, which seems gratuitous. Like I'd be annoyed if I was Peter. And Peter, you could tell he's getting annoyed, right? Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know I love you. Feed my sheep. Okay. Peter, do you love me? Yes. And he keeps on asking. It's almost like, I mean, again, it's like he's asking as if he's asking for every time he denied him. Not to shame him, but to weed out the shame. To bring up each time of the denials and bring it back to this. Do you love me? To reestablish the friendship, Jesus is asking this question. To make sure that, that Peter is not defined by his worst mistake, but he's, he has the opportunity to be defined by Jesus' greatest forgiveness. And he keeps on asking, do you love me? And all of a sudden, the self-doubt dissolves. Do you love me? And the skepticism starts to fade away. Do you love me? Feed my sheep. And all of a sudden, the shame Shame is gone. Peter has his beach moment with Jesus. His moment where he has an opportunity to be restored and transformed, and he goes from that beach, and he continues to fail, folks. He does not get it right every time, and the New Testament records it. And you know why they record it? Because they're not embarrassed about it. You know why they're not embarrassed about it? Because each of these major fails were not the most important thing about Peter. You know what the most important thing about Peter was? He answered the question, yes, I love you. Peter experienced restoration because of Jesus, and that becomes the most important thing in his life. And later on, this illiterate dude dictates a letter to someone to write to a church. He actually becomes someone who actually does what Jesus said he could do. He had no reason to be utilized in this church-building, kingdom-building movement, and yet he was. And as he's writing to these churches, he writes this, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us birth into what? Not a dead hope, not a memorial hope, a living hope. And that's massive. That's huge. Like if you're in the room, that's huge, right? If you're out in the overflow, that's huge, right? If you're in the upper room, the upper room is actually playing a major game of Twister. They've turned off the... It's huge, right? Yes. Living hope. And here's the thing. It's not a living hope because you believe so strongly. Peter doesn't say that. Peter says, a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It all hangs on that and into an inheritance that can never perish, never spoil, never fade. Everything else you invest in in life will. That 
that will never, ever fade. But he doesn't stop there. He continues. He says, in all this, you, are gr- you greatly rejoice, though now, for a little while, you may have had to suffer grief and all kinds of trials. He's pointing out the fact that, you know what? I saw it. Listen, I saw suffering. I know what suffering looks like. I saw a good God, powerful God, suffering to death. I saw it. But I saw that suffering with this Jesus is never the end of the story. Never the end of the story. And it won't be the end of your story either. Look, you haven't been there. You haven't been on the beach with Jesus. You weren't there when he asked the question, do you love me? But I want to invite you to your beach moment right now. I'm inviting you to the shore to experience this same Jesus that I put my trust in. And guess what? Even though you haven't seen him, I'm passing this on to you. And he says that. He says, though you have not seen him, you're answering the same question. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Is that your story? Have you had that beach moment with Jesus where you've had a chance to answer that question? Yes. Has Jesus, you know, when Jesus has invited you into a life with him, have you answered that yes? And if you're a Christian, the answer is yes, but is that informing your reality now? Is this inexpressible joy informing your life right now? Which, of course, brings us back to my sister-in-law, Amy. Amy was someone who would have been tight with Saul back in the day, except for she went to Ben as religious. Uh, she identified as somebody who... De- who there's some force out there. I don't can't explain it, but it's definitely not God. You know how I know that it's not God and certainly not the Christian God? Because I've met Christians. She met enough Christians to push her far and far, super far away from any desire to have any type of faith with God. And so she didn't. For a long time, she didn't. And then she started dating my brother. My brother was sprinting away from Jesus. By the way, I love how Peter doesn't have to go find Jesus. Jesus went to find Peter. Isn't that cool? My brother was sprinting away from God, but God found him. He started to transform his life in small baby step increments. I'm talking like glacial speed. Just... And us as a family, we're like, no. You know who started to notice that? All of a sudden, she started seeing a different Jesus than she ever knew. She put her trust in him. Amy had her beach moment with Jesus. She answered, yes, I love you. I don't understand you. I've got questions still. My agnosticism is like the loudest voice in my head, but I've got enough information to go all in. I wrote her, because uh, I just love Amy's story, um, and, I, and she's, cause she, she's working at a church now. She's on staff at a church letting other people know about Jesus. Love that. And in the midst of it, I said, you know, tell me, what is it that you love about Jesus? That Jesus took on unimaginable pain and darkness for me. And the lesson wasn't, if I can do it, you can do it. It was, I'm doing this so you don't have to. It rocks me every time I think about it and can't help but feel grateful. Folks, if Jesus was sitting right in front of you, and asked you that question, do you love me? What would be your answer? If you're far from God today, how many times would Jesus have to ask you, do you love me? 
before you started to believe that he's been after your heart all along. He wants to be close to you. He wants to be connected to you. He doesn't want to simply to be a dusty belief that you ascribe to. He wants to transform your life. Many of you grew up with a belief in God, but if you're honest, if you were honest with me right now, if we were honest with each other, your faith of your childhood has not transformed your life. It's kept you stuck in your sin. It's kept you stuck in your self-doubt and your skepticism and your shame. This Jesus did not come to keep you right where you are. He came to restore and transform you. And I want to give you an opportunity to answer his question, to go all in, to follow him with all of your heart. In just a moment, we're going to see the stories of a bunch of people who are going to be baptized today. Baptism is a weird thing Christians do to symbolize the fact that we're connecting ourselves with Jesus and he has restored us. We're connecting with his death and we're celebrating his resurrection with our life. We celebrate that, we applaud, we scream, we get super stoked about it because it's such a huge deal. But before we watch those testimonies and, and those baptisms take place, I want to give you an opportunity by praying to God right now with you. So if you're at home or you're right here, let's go ahead and close our eyes and go before the Lord. Lord Jesus, we know that grace, grace is something that is the good news because it's us not getting the hell we deserve. The distance from you that we want, that we've wanted for our whole life with our choices, we don't get the punishment for that. Instead, we get what we don't deserve. We get the free gift from you, which is connection to you. We get you. We don't get the distance from God, which we deserve. We get the gift of God, which we don't deserve because of what you did for us, Jesus. Lord, we understand that there's no way that we could pay for that or promise that we'll be perfect. We simply respond to your question with yes. Yes, I love you. I don't understand. I don't have all the questions answered. But I thank you for dying for my sins, for forgiving my sins, for giving me an opportunity to live because of what you did. The fact that you resurrected, the fact that you're real. I get to have a real relationship with you from this point on. As we're praying, if that's you, if you've been far from God, whether you grew up with the faith but you never really connected to it, or you've been running from God your whole life, tell God, Ask him. Ask him to forgive you, because he will. Ask him to restore you, because he wants to. Ask him to make you new because of the resurrection, because of the payment he made on the cross and the power of the resurrection. Ask him for that right now. And ask him to start right now in your life the newness that only comes from a life of following him. Ask him for the transformation. This God, you didn't have to find, found you. May today be the first day that you begin to follow his lead in the journey of following after him. God, we thank you for all of these things. We thank you for your love, for your resurrection, for the fact that you're not just going to catch up with us in heaven, but that we get a chance to walk with you now. Thank you for all that. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And now... Let's listen to the stories.